With Refactor, we're trying to get people back at the center of tech. We strongly believe it makes us grow as a community to share our insights and reflect upon common challenges. Today we have Andrew Edges with us. He's currently an uh, engineering manager at Zapier. Hello, Andrew. Hey, how's it going? Welcome. Thank you for being here. You have a very interesting career and also a very interesting social involvement. We'll talk a bit about that later. Mm-hmm. Uh, something that struck me as I read your resume was that you started uh, freelancing web development in 1998. I mean, back yeah. then, uh, the web was a very, very different place. How did that happen? Yeah, no, that's a good good question. Um, I think I saw saw the web for the first time in 1994. So January 1994, mm-hmm. I was working at a university. And so, you know, we actually had Ethernet uh, connections like in, in the room where I was living and um, so, uh, fired up the web for the first time in Mosaic 1.0 beta, I think, uh, like way back. And I remember looking at the web and saying, you know, there were images and these links and stuff. And I was like, oh, that, that's kind of cool. But Gopher is where all the information is. So Gopher surely is going to win. Um, <laughs> couldn't be more wrong. But um, uh, so anyway, I, I got kind of intrigued by the web and started just tinkering around. And, um, you know, a few years later, decided to just switch careers, actually, from working in education uh, to being, a, you know, just kind of hanging out my shingle, as we say here, um, as a freelancer, uh, just trying, trying to be a professional web developer. You did not study computer science, right? No, I was I was actually a French major in, in undergraduate. That's very interesting. You were really like an early web actor in in a way. You you were freelancing for a year and then you went on to work uh, as an employee as a web developer. Yeah, that first year was really interesting. It was, I I lost money technically. I made you know I had a few clients, but um, you know I made a I made a a band website for a friend of mine. I you know did a couple of small projects, um, and it was it was really good experience just to just to try to be an entrepreneur, first of all, you know, mm. I was reading about marketing and accounting and all these other, other things that, you know, would come in handy later on. You know, the, the web, like you said, was so much simpler back then. Like, you know, we were laying things out, you know, laying out pages with tables and we were using mm. font tags. And, I remember you know, that actually. Yeah. After, at the end of that year, I uh, decided to move back to Washington, D.C., where I'd gone to grad school and, um, you know, found sort of a, my first, you know, quote unquote, real job in web development, you know, an actual company paying me to do this stuff. And later on, you were, you had the title webmaster. And that made me laugh <laughs> a little bit because nowadays nobody says webmaster no, anymore. And I was like, oh, back in the days, we were called webmasters. Yeah, I was, I was webmaster a couple of times. Yeah. Um, yeah, yeah. And it's, you know, it's just indicative of how the industry has matured. You know, you have, like, you specialize now. You, you specialize down to, Absolutely. you know, mobile web, web front end development or something, you know, something very specific. Mm-hmm. Um, whereas back then, you had one person who managed the website and they exactly. ran the server and they, you know, coded it up and they wrote the content and they, you know, they took the photos for the, you know, all everything. So it was, yeah, one man's band. It was a very, very different world. Mm-hmm. At one point you joined um, Tapulous and that made me tick because I remember Tap Tap Revenge a lot. Oh, I, mean, I yeah. used to, oh yeah, I used to love that game with my brother and it was really a, a great game. Mm-hmm. And so uh, as a web developer, what was your role in that company? Because if I remember correctly, they were like mobile first, like making uh, native applications, not, not websites mm-hmm. or. Oh yeah. Yeah. Well, that's a real, that's a great question. So um, yeah, Tapulous was a, sort of an indie game company. Um, 
had Tap Tap Revenge was the hit game, sort of really the first hit game on the iPhone. And they were acquired by Disney, and then shortly thereafter, I joined. So we were actually part of Disney uh, by the time I got there. So the yeah, all the gameplay was was native iOS, uh, you know, like a Cocoa application or whatever, yep. Objective C. And um, but what we did is we had a lot of social features were actually web views within the games. Oh, so okay. Not the game. I, itself. Originally, we had yeah, yeah, exactly. So we had chat, and we had you know when you would buy you know, some kind of like power up or, you know, some kind of add on or okay. something that stuff with all web views. And so what my team, my team did there was, um, well, first me. And then as we grew, uh, kind of hired up a little team, we tried to make web views that looked as much like a native application as possible. So, you know, within iOS, like that was sort of possible to do, you know, you had a lot of, uh, you know, good animation support and, and that kind of thing. So, you know, we got pretty good at making things like it was hard to tell. I mean, it sounds like you didn't realize that some things were web views. No, as you not play, at all. Right? Yeah. Not at all, right? Yeah, yeah the, great job on that. And actually it's it's interesting because nowadays we're, um, we're going forward with cross-platform uh, frameworks, you know, which work, mm -hmm. I mean, have something in common with what you were trying to do back in the days, you know, mm -hmm. make things look native and trying to lower the cost of development, right? Yeah. There's, I've seen, you know, over the that, you know, the last ten years or so, a lot of sort of um, attempts at this. Where, you know, I mean, we at, at Disney, we even tried. We were we wanted to get into more Android development too, and because um, there's a big market there. Yep. And so we tried to abstract out some of the some things down to lower level libraries that would work in both places, mm. and it really ended up not working very well. You know, it was um, we tried it, and yeah, with the web views too, like. Um, I've seen several attempts at, you know, something that sort of promises that you can, you know, you can write things in JavaScript and have it compile to Objective-C yeah. or whatever. And the opinion I've formed over the years watching so many of these things fail yeah. <laughs> is that, you know, for whatever platform you're building, like building the stuff that's native for that platform. So on the web, build in JavaScript and then iOS build in now Swift, I guess, um, you know, on Android build in Java. Like don't, don't try to force this kind of abstraction. Yeah, but I guess it's about cost. You know, some people want to cut costs. It might be expensive to have both mm -hmm. an iOS developer and a good Android developer. So they're trying to find ways to prototype mm -hmm. uh, at a lower cost, I guess. But with rollbacks, as you said, of course, nothing's better than native uh, native code, I guess, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. And even you know, even the stuff that we were doing when I was at Disney, like it was it was a, a a pretty heavy lift to get you know to make these web views mm. behave like a native screen, right? So. Um, you know, they probably could have had one of their iOS developers do the same thing in half the time, to be honest. Yeah. <laughs> but wasn't the, 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 the objective to be able to update those views without having to update the yeah. application in a way? Yeah, that was one of the objectives. Yeah, there. exactly. That, that's the big, kind of the big win there. So you don't have to resubmit the whole app to the App Store to change something. Yeah, yeah. for sure. And then after Tapulus, you joined Apple. So mm -hmm. that must have been something, right? Joining a, a GAFAM. Uh, how did it happen for you? I mean... Uh, were you approached by Apple? Did you did you apply? Yeah, I was I was happy at Disney. You know, I was I thought mm -hmm. I was going to be there for a long time. I was there for about two and a half years, and there was one week where three different recruiters from Apple called me, and I was like, "Fine, I'll take your call." Like, you know, <laughs> kind of fun. I mean, you know, when it, it's funny, like once because I do a lot of work with early career developers, and it's so hard to break into the industry. Mm -hmm. And it was even you know, it's, it always kind of has been to some degree, but then once you're in. You know, once you and when you're kind of established mm. and have some experience, you know, there's such a like there's such competition for talent, especially in in the Bay Area where I was living at the time. You know, it's kind of constant uh, 
solicitations from recruiters and things. So, so yeah, so one week uh, that happened and I talked to them and it turned out to be a pretty interesting role. And, um, mm -hmm. you know, I was kind of always a fan of Apple. You know, I've had, I think my first Mac that I bought was in 1990 or something. So, you know, I kind of, I go back pretty far with the company. And, and so you worked on the Apple website, right? Apple.com website. Yeah, I was in the marketing communications group, Marcom there, and we built uh, sort of product websites on apple.com. The first iPhone optimized website, that, that must have been interesting, fully oh, responsive. Yeah, yeah. And, uh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was pretty hacky too. Was, um, I don't know if you remember when the, the the Mac Pro came out, the one that was kind of like a black cylinder. My team built the, the site for that. It kind of, uh, that was pretty exciting, uh, but it's also that was a hard project. A lot of pressure. I mean, how was it to work at Apple? Yeah, so at Apple, uh, for in Marcom anyway, you know, we're building these websites. There is no changing the date that you ship the website, right? Oh, so okay. deadlines were hard deadlines, right? Yeah, exactly. There's the, the iron triangle in, in project management of, you know, uh, time, uh, resources and um, scope, scope, right? Okay. So, um, you know, there was no, you know, Tim Cook was going to get up on stage and he was going to make the mm. announcement whether the website was ready or not. So you had to be ready. It was Apple, so you had all the resources in the world. They could hire contractors or just like you could throw people at the problem. Mm. Um, Money was not a problem. Right, exactly. So then the other thing you have to play with is scope. That's kind of the only thing. And, um, you know, the expectations there are just sky high in terms, you know, you have art directors who are really passionate about the work that they're mm -hmm. doing. They want this amazing experience. And then, it, you know, it really does, even though, you know, we would make things look, work better on Apple products, you, you know, it has to work across, you know, Firefox and Internet Explorer yeah, back then, and, you know, phones and all that kind of stuff. So, yeah, so that, that project was a pro the first time I uh, slept under my desk at work. <laughs> okay, okay. That has been something <laughs> yeah, to so, meet the deadline. Yeah, exactly. So, um, yeah, that was a hard one. We were, we were QA approved 4.30 in the morning, the day of the keynote. And that, and that website went out and we got so many kudos from people. It was so well received and we actually won awards for that website. And, you know, especially the team, you know, the, the, the uh, engineers who worked on it uh, just loved seeing, you know, on Twitter, people just raving mm. about the website. Some people even said the website's better than the product itself. <laughs> so, you know, that's, that's, that's quite a feat. That's right? quite a feat. Yeah. And then you were at Ipodidis. Uh What What is that a company? What did you do there? Mm -hmm. Yeah, I was director of engineering at Hypothesis, which is um, it's a, a nonprofit that builds a SaaS product. So the product there is... Um, it's a little sort of add-on to the browser that you can use to annotate web pages. So similar to Google Google Docs or something where you can highlight something and leave a comment, mm -hmm. but on any web page on the on the internet. So um, yeah, one of the one of the kind of cool things about it, if you think about it, is you know there's there's a URL for a particular web page, mm -hmm. but by using Hypothesis, you can then take that and make almost infinite. You know, URLs directly to a piece of the, the document. Oh, okay. You can direct like anchors, like anchors to a, a specific area of the page. Mm -hmm. And then you can have a conversation about it. And, you know, so it's used for uh, like fact checking um, or just uh, actually research, maybe. Yeah, for sure. Research and stuff. Yeah. Um, academia. It must have been quite a chance to work for a nonprofit after Apple. Uh... <laughs> yeah, it's a little bit different. Yeah. I yeah, mean, a little, just, just a little bit. <laughs> well, 16 people. Okay. You know, Apple is a company of 100,000 people. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. The scale different. is very different, but maybe the mindset is in a way. Well, yeah. I mean, the funny thing about Apple, even though it's so big, is that individual groups within Apple have mm -hmm. a lot of leeway to, to operate, not quite okay. like a startup, you know, but like, you know, pretty independently and stuff and move fast and all. 
So actually working for a nonprofit for me was almost like kind of coming back to my roots because, you know, I started off in education I worked for even in a technical capacity for you know, a couple of universities and stuff mm -hmm. too. And so it felt pretty natural um, in some ways. Uh, that was my first time managing a team fully remotely as well. The whole yep. you know, hypothesis is a fully distributed company. So we'll talk a bit about that later. We watch your experience and, uh, and everything about remote working. And so today you're working for Zapier. Uh, you've mm -hmm. been an engineering manager since October of, of 2018. Can you tell us a bit about Zapier and what you, you're doing? Oh yeah, for sure. There? Yeah, I've been there. Yeah, about two and a half years now. Um, yeah, so I I lead a small team and we work on the Zapier homepage and the Zapier blog and other what we call foundational pages. So mm -hmm. our my team is uh, the sort of uh, mission of our team is to help use new users who have become aware of Zapier, you know, consider Zapier as a as a solution for them. So we help them learn about, you know, what the, what the product can do, um, you know, what, what the value is basically to them, how it's going to save them time. It's linked to marketing. And... Yeah, for sure. Yeah. 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 yeah it's very connected to, yeah, we're very connected to our marketing group kind of in new user onboarding and some of those kinds of activities. So um, yeah, Zapier is fully remote and um, it's just a, it's a really well-run company. It's uh, you know, the, the founders are all, technical and they are all most of them are musicians <laughs> you know so okay. they have this this interesting kind of mix of you know creativity and um appreciation of uh, improvisation and that kind of thing as well as having you know systems thinking and stuff so okay so they brought that from music to software engineering basically that's what you're saying yeah that, yeah that exactly kind of mindset. Yeah. one of the things i really appreciated about it is just uh that the leadership tries to put in place the right incentives, like good incentives to, to make it natural to do the right thing. So, you know, we have mm. company values that, um, that we, that we talk about really actively and, uh, you know, for instance, we have a profit sharing plan. So, um, you know, profit sharing, if you make more profit, you get more money as an individual. Yeah. So, but they've tried to structure the profit sharing plan in a way that we're not sacrificing long-term growth for some kind of short-term gain. Right. So, it's that, those kinds of decisions that I think are really, that they've really done a, a good job with. And I think, I think we're sort of free to do that because we haven't taken a lot of investment, you know, so it's privately held and yeah. we don't have a bunch of VCs. You don't have uh, VCs behind you, an investor that you have to, uh, that, that yeah. need the short-term uh, gains, I guess. Yeah, exactly, yeah. We are also the founder of the Collab Lab. Mm -hmm. Could you tell us a bit about that? Yeah, 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 I love Collab Lab. Um, it's probably my, my favorite thing that I do. So. Um, yeah, Stacy and I have been doing that for about a year and a half now. Um, the Collab Lab is a, a U.S.-based nonprofit as well, um, and we we really, I mean, the, the real overarching mission is to help early career developers get jobs, um, but with an emphasis on people in underrepresented groups. Um, the way that we do that is that we uh, we put people on small teams, so teams of four developers with with a lot of mentor support. And they work on a project. Um, it's a, you know, a project that we sort of have predefined and they work on the project. And the point is not so much to learn technical skills as it is to learn collaboration skills. So mm. both soft skills and hard skills, basically, that's what you're saying. Yeah. Yeah. And we don't, you know, you are the developers who go through our, our program. They do, they, you know, they get better technically for sure. You know, they're interacting with professional web developers and that kind of thing, but that's not really the emphasis. It's really mm. about learning you know, how to, you know, pair programming, uh, which we think is a really good way to accelerate your learning. Um, you know, learning how to write a great PR message, how a good commit message, how to um, 
how to do how to handle merge conflicts, you know, like kind of all that that stuff, how to submit a PR. And then um as well, we do, you know, they'll you demo your work, we do retrospectives, a lot of the a lot of the things that professional software teams do. Um and the things that are really hard to replicate if you are just studying on your own, if you're uh, you're even at a lot of boot camps, they don't they, they don't go into a lot of depth on these things. You might use yeah. Git, but you're working on you know just your main branch or something. Yeah. Time, right. So how did that idea came to your mind? I mean, how did it start for you? I taught at a, a coding boot camp here in Portland in the summer of 2016. Um, stayed on there as an advisor, and um, one of the graduates of that that code school. He was just we were talking and he was saying that it's just really it was really hard for him to find the motivation to keep to keep practicing to keep coding mm -hmm. and so i asked him you know what would, what do you think would help you do that and he said that having a team around him people that he is sort of externally accountable to would be a way for him to you know have a have an incentive to kind of keep keep doing it so i was like you know i just built this app for myself this kind of smart shopping list app for myself so i could probably spec that out and we found a couple of other people to do this with you i could project manage it for you and so he was like yeah let's do it and we were actually getting together right before a junior dev meetup here in portland so we went to the meetup this is back when you could go to meetups <laughs> and um <laughs> for like ages ago right <laughs> i know i know um and uh we met uh caitlin greffley who uh was like, you know, we asked her if she would be interested in participating. She's like, yeah, let's do it. So we had two people. So we knew there was some validation for the idea. We found another, another couple of people, one of whom was Stacy Taylor. And, um, and then we just ran the project. I kind of, I just made it up, you know, <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I kind of wrote the stories and, you know, did sort of a project brief and just, uh, we had, you know, like eventually we're doing, we weren't, we weren't even doing weekly check-ins at, at first, but just kind of having the team work on things. And we got to the end of it. Um, this was, you know, August, September, something like that, of 2018. And um, Stacy, in particular, was like, "We got to do this for other people. This was this was a great experience." And so she she pushed me to like, let's like we put up a website, we advertised, and um, you know, and uh, we got the next group together. So by the time we had done it twice, we're like, "Okay, we can we can make this into a thing." And so we just started, you know, being more, just sort of like slowly kind of ramping it up over time, and as, mm. in terms of a more sort of professional program. How many, uh, I don't know if you call them classes, have you uh, got uh, up today? Yeah, so we've we've had, we're now on our 20th team. We've, we've switched to a model where we have, you know, four or five teams start at the same time. We call that a cohort. 72 developers have come through the program now. So it's, it's become a, a real community. Um, so we have a, you know, we have a Slack team where we kind of do most of our communication. And uh, a lot of people hang around in the Slack and they ask questions or ask for feedback on maybe a blog post that they've written or just, you know, um, can you review my resume? Those, those types of mm. questions that, that goes on a lot in the Slack team. And did any of, of, of those people find a job after uh, enrolling in, in the Collab Lab? Oh, for sure. Yeah. Um, I mean, a lot of, you know, we've had several people get jobs during their cohort. And oh. um, a lot of people have credited their Collab Lab experience with uh, just being able to speak to some of the things that come up in an interview. You know, um, mm. you know, a lot of interviews. It's, you know, tell me about a time when a project like you know didn't go well or something. And if you've only ever done stuff, you know, if you've been on Free Code Camp by yourself, you know, of course, you don't have that experience. That that makes right, really right. sense. You're emulating mm -hmm. uh, the real uh, day-to-day -day life of a software engineer, basically. That's very mm -hmm. interesting. All the little things that you don't learn in schools or in uh, in boot camps, basically, that's very clever. And so, uh, 
what was your motivation? I mean, you you told me uh, it was about uh, helping people land a job, and uh, mm -hmm. you were also talking about diversity in tech. So, mm -hmm. did you find at the time that there was uh, some kind of gatekeeping that prevented people from diverse backgrounds to enter tech, basically, right? Oh, for sure. Yeah. So, I mean, I've been thinking about this for a long time, but um, you know, it really hit home when I was teaching at the boot camp. We had this group of people who, you know just learning, you know, and, um, you know, a boot camp for me, most boot camps, what they really do is they teach you how to teach yourself, how to continue teaching yourself. Like you're not really ready for a software job at the end of a 12 week or 16 week boot camp. You know, it's, it's just, there's so much to know. Right. Mm -hmm. So, but what it does is it kind of sets you up that if you're motivated and you kind of, you keep learning and, you know, find people to, you know, maybe somebody wants to do a project with you or something like you, you can kind of bootstrap yourself into it that way. But what, I've also found is that not only are early career people tough, to, I mean, it's tough to find a job anyway, but tech generally is, you know, it skews towards white men, especially in the United States. Um, so, and, you know, skew, I mean, there's, you know, there's some bias towards computer science backgrounds yeah. and that kind of thing. Like there are, there are these sort True. of facets where it's, it's just harder for, you know, people from certain backgrounds or certain identities to, to get jobs. Um, So one of the things we did from the very beginning with Collab Lab was to, uh, you know, to have the this team of four be at most one man and at least three non-men. So um, in that first group, there was one man and three women, mm -hmm. and we've continued that throughout the whole the whole time. And that's that was really intentional in, as a way to kind of make it make it psychologically safe for the participants to um, to kind of just show up and be a technologist, you know. Mm -hmm. um, You know, there are plenty of stories of workplaces, tech workplaces where, you know, it's hard to be a woman, like you're not taken seriously or like you, you tend to, you know, you get criticized for the tone of what you write as opposed to the substance of it and that kind of thing. So by skewing our teams towards more women than men, um, we kind of were able to sort of uh, disarm some of that dynamic or something. Um, uh, we, you know, we've had, we've had teams that were three black women. I mean, there are organizations that, Uh, you know, sort of would, would target that as a as a thing, like maybe it's all black women or something. Mm -hmm. But we have, um, we do try to have our our groups be a little more mixed in the sense, like, and the that's also intentional. So, like, I intentionally want men to be part of this, and I intentionally want you know white men to be part of it, because um, mm -hmm. I think there is there's a um, there's a concept called tokenization where you like you you know if people are selected because of their identity right? That there's sort of a, maybe a self-doubt that they might have that I was only chosen for this because I'm a woman or because yeah. I'm a person of color or something, right? So by having these groups be mixed, it's a little bit of like, wait, I can hang in a group that has a white man in it or something, you know, like it's not, you know, that like maybe there's a little bit more, it's like a next step after some of those groups that do, that do kind of get people started in, in tech. So it's funny because Tech has an image, and tech companies like the big ones, the GAFAM, they have an image of being progressive, spearheading company culture. Mm -hmm. But basically, what you're saying, it's not. It's there's still a lot of gatekeeping towards women, diverse people, black people, mm -hmm. and so the image of tech doesn't align with reality. What What do you think is missing in uh, company cultures today? You've been in several, and uh, uh, you might have insights. What What is missing in those companies to really? Uh, welcome diversity a lot more that they are doing today. Yeah, it's a complex topic. Because we started Collab Lab with that in mind, 
we have been able to sort of organically grow a really diverse, you know, community. And that's like maybe my favorite accomplishment of that whole thing. I think what happens a lot is, you know, somebody has an idea for a company, they find a couple of people that they know, you know, mm. sort of like in their immediate circle to help them with it. And all of a sudden you have three white male founders, right? Mm. They hire a couple of people and those are usually people in their network. So it's, then you have like five or six white males, maybe a white female, <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and then it's, then it's, then you have a problem. Like it's really hard to overcome that. And actually, even if with the best of intentions or whatever, you know, um, it's, it takes a lot, you know, it takes, it takes a lot of intentionality to, to overcome that if you've already, ha if you already have it or foresight to try not to, to set that. It should be by design, basically. You should grow your company and by design in that growth, have that diversity in mind. That's what you're saying, basically. Yeah, I think so. So the network is key, actually. It's, it's some kind of network effect. Is that what you're saying? Yeah. And so that's maybe the hardest part about it is that you, you have to have done a bunch of work on yourself <laughs> in order to even know that that's a thing you should pay attention to at that stage of a company. At that stage of a company, you're thinking like, how do we acquire users? You know, how do we, mm. like, there's, you know, this bug backlog we have to like, to, you know, all the stuff. And you're not thinking about, you know, like, oh, we should really make sure that our next hire is, is a black woman or something. You know what I mean? But, but having a diverse team actually helps you a lot not to have blind spots and things. So mm. think about like social networks where, you know, people will throw, I actually up there was a little bit like this, um, not to kind of call them out too much, but they're, um, you know, we actually had some discussions about how do you, how do you protect against abuse and that kind of thing of the platform? Because there were ways that you could sort of message people or sort of push things into other people's feeds and that kind of thing. And there were no controls for that. And the, the answer at the time was, these are people who are working together they should be able to like, it's, it was targeted towards companies. So mm -hmm. they should be able to tr you know, like, trust or have other mechanisms to take care of that. And I was like, oh, I don't know about that. You know, like HR departments aren't always great about actually ferreting that stuff out. Um, you know, it doesn't prevent it from happening. It just, it's like more reactionary. Like they're, you know, yep. so having a more diverse team means that you're thinking of those things, you know, earlier on in the product uh, life, life cycle. So I do think there's, you know, there's real business value to it. There's also, I think, a, sort of an ethical obligation just to to try to make the world a little more equitable, you know? The more, more diverse the people are, the more uh, broad the ideas can be because of the difference in culture or in background. And that's something that we really value. Uh, mm -hmm. Something that is interesting is nowadays, uh, we see a shift to remote work because of the pandemic. And I think it becomes even easier to work and reach to people uh, from different backgrounds, geographical areas actually, right? Mm -hmm. And instead of just uh, from uh, the Silicon Valley, for instance. So it might be something that is uh, uh, working toward a more diverse tech uh, horizon, don't mm -hmm. you think? Absolutely. And, you know, Zapier is a good example of that. We have employees in 30 or 40 countries or something. The Collab Lab has been fully distributed since the mm -hmm. beginning. And we have, we've had developers in, I think, six or seven, maybe eight countries or something um, over the last year and a half. Yeah, it, it definitely it breaks down some of those borders. You know, we were we were talking about my freelancing earlier. I did a kind of another year of freelancing around 2009, I guess, and I had clients. My, actually, both of my big clients that year, I never, I've still never met them in person. You know, so even that far, that that far back, we were already, I was already, you know, remote working and things, and just figuring out how to get things done, how to track the project and communicate on different issues and stuff. So it's definitely possible and the tools now are better than they ever have been 
but I think you're right. It can it can really break down some barriers. the The problem now is, uh, you know, more 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 companies are open to remote work, which is yep. great. Um, but there's still there's still borders, right? Like so, there are still you know you have even if you like I know an an amazing um, engineer in Egypt, and I would love to hire her, um, or you know I'd love to hook her up with jobs, you know, like that I see coming through my my channels. But she would have to have a U.S. work authorization for some of those, right? There's a ton of talent out there. You know, what they say is, uh, you know, talent is evenly distributed, but opportunity is not. So you know, we we've, we've had now, uh, I guess, four developers in Africa who've worked with us, and it's tough to get them jobs <laughs> outside of their local economies, right? And their local economies sometimes don't support it as well. Some companies they want people mm -hmm. in the same time zone, so it might not be possible to hire someone from a different continent, for instance. But yeah. with, you know, we're also talking in remote work uh, of a shift to asynchronous communication. You know, we all love mm. to be uh, directly in contact with people over Zoom, but it's not always the best way to communicate and work together, right? Mm -hmm. And so with asynchronous, uh, asynchronous communication, <clears throat> it may be possible to work in a more global environment. Yeah, I think that's true. There, we're not, at Zapier, we're not, that isn't the approach we've taken. Um, Some of our teams do that a little to a more a greater extent than others, but for the most part, what we try to do is we have small cross-functional teams, and we try to have those teams be within three or four time zones of each other. So you can't okay. can have synchronous meetings, but then we have teams all over the world, right? So um, that's that's the way we are handling it for now. I've, I know other team, other companies are a little better at being truly asynchronous, like um, mm -hmm. automatic. They've tried to be this uh, actually asynchronous uh, sort of from the beginning, so they're pretty good at that. Yeah, the time zone thing is hard, but I've also, I actually had an engineer on my team at Zapier for a while who, he started off in Toronto, but then he decided to move to Taiwan. Mm -hmm. And But he wanted not to keep... the same time zone, for sure. Not the same time zone, but he decided to try to keep the same working oh, hours. yeah. So he was getting up at three in the morning or something to work, you know, two or three in the morning, so that he could have overlap with the team. And he did that for probably a year or something. Oh, okay. Managed to... I've heard people doing that. He was, you know, kind of guy who was super into biohacks and stuff. He... He, he taught mm. me about the co coffee nap, which I'd never heard of. So you drink your coffee and then you lay down for a nap for 20 minutes and you wake up and you're just bursting with energy, you know? <laughs> <laughs> never heard that one. I don't yeah. drink coffee anymore. I'm not sure I, I want to do that. <laughs> <laughs> What's interesting is that you have, yeah, you have very early experience. You told me as a freelance, a remote, but also at Hypothesis, right? That were, uh, what yep. you had a full distributed. Was that like the first time you were working in a distributed setting? Yeah, so at up there, I was actually remote, but the company was mostly co-located. And then my next experience was Hypothesis, where it was fully distributed. And I have to say, it's like night and day. It's actually, up there made a real effort to create a good remote experience. Mm -hmm. And But I would fly down to California one week a month. I mean, I did that for about eight months. And it was okay. But, like you know, I was able to, when I was there, I was able to, you know, go to lunch with people and kind of, you know, build relationships, yep. have, you know, higher bandwidth conversations and all that mm. kind of stuff. But there was still three weeks out of the month where I wasn't there. And, you know, I would, you know, there'd be a laptop on a, on a desk and I could kind of, kind of hear most of the people in the meeting, you know, it's just it's not a good experience. And, um, but then going to someplace where it's fully distributed, everyone's in the same situation. So mm. there are some things that are harder, you know, it's a little bit harder to just, you know, you can't get to get on a whiteboard and kind of hash something out with somebody, have a, a, a fast discussion, no. figure something out, right? Sure. So you have to be a little more deliberate. But everyone's in the same boat. So you, you know, there's no, everyone understands that's what out. you have to do. Exactly. I was talking to, to an engineer in a German company who told me that uh, sometimes they would forget about him. I mean, 
people in the yeah. office would forget to invite him because he was remote. I was like, uh -huh. okay. Let's oh yeah, see that it. happened to me too, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Let's be harsh, I mean. Yeah. And so how did you adapt to a hypothesis which was fully distributed? What were the, were the guidelines uh, when you joined uh, the nonprofit? They were like, okay, we, we're good at this. We know how to do it properly and we have guidelines. And uh, how did that work? Um, it wasn't very well documented, I would say. Um, okay. Not like Zapier where there's you know, a whole remote working guide and you know, lots of sort of support and direction on how you're supposed to do that. But it was also, you know, also a much, much smaller organization. So there were norms. You know, there were... Um, So my team consisted mostly of people in the UK and I was on, I'm on the West coast of the U S mm. and my days started early. A lot of times, you know, I was on, I was online at 7 AM or something, having meetings with people over there because it's already towards the end of their day at that yeah. time. Um, to overlap. that was okay. <laughs> it kind of got old after a while, you know, like, like it's tough to, I don't know, at least I don't want to get up that have to be up and active. Yeah. Um, that early in the morning talking at that early. Yeah. And talking with people that have already a full day behind them, you know, not the same kind of energy, right? Yeah, it always felt like I was catching up and always, I would always, um, you know, like I'd get into my day and I'd realize, oh, I need to talk to so-and-so tomorrow. And so while they're sleeping, I'm putting calendar invites on their calendar. That never felt mm -hmm. good either, you know, like yeah, it was just, yeah. yeah, it's not great. So, so that's the thing, I guess, you know, we did still rely on synchronous communication, even in that situation. So maybe a thing we could have done better was to try to really go asynchronous and just not not rely on that's that's hard to that's hard to do that because it doesn't feel natural we always we crave for interaction especially today with the pandemic we know we want to see people mm. even if you're tired of zoom and everything we yeah. it's not the same writing an email so it's like we're kind of biased and uh, we think that synchronous is better but it's not always better at all actually and so you're telling me that at zapier they have guidelines a handbook about uh remote working Oh yeah. I mean, there's a whole guide about, um, I mean, it's even down to things like, uh, how to set up your space. So you're most productive, like mm. experiment with different temperatures in the, your room okay. and see what, like, you know, what makes you more alert, you know, okay. yeah, this ton of guidance and really good support in terms of equipment and things. So, you know, I'm standing here at a, a very nice standing desk and a, I have a big monitor and keyboard, like all the, all the things I need to not have to, like, those aren't distracting me from the things I need to do, you know? So basically, they have, they have guidelines, but what about uh, remote fatigue? I mean, do they have guidelines also about mm. how to be careful about work-life balance as well? Yeah, it's actually, Zapier is one of the better places I've worked for that as well. Um, you know, as I mentioned earlier about Apple, I've worked at places that are not very good about that. Uh, but we, uh, we have an unlimited time off policy, which I know a lot of places... Like Netflix. Yeah, yeah. But I know a lot of, like the criticism of that approach is that It means you never take time off, you know. Yeah. So um, they're not, you know, you're not losing anything if you uh, if you don't use it. But we do actually like we really encourage people to take, you know, at least two weeks, three weeks, you know, is better. Four weeks is even better of time off, and people really do. Um, so yeah, I feel like uh, Zapier is actually really good about just, uh, and I think this is true of the company as a whole. But I definitely, with my team, approach it this way, where you know, if you are tired, I would much rather you rest then come in yeah. and make mistakes or it's in the company's interest too, right? I believe so. Yeah. It's a win-win sure. situation. Having employees that are healthy and have a good work-life balance, mm -hmm. I mean, they will work better as well and also bring a different, a good energy to, to the company. Yeah, absolutely. I just, yeah, I think you do your, you know, you do your best work and it, when you're, when you're rested, I really firmly believe that programming is creative work mm. and 
you know, your mind needs to be in the right mindset to, you know, to kind of have the insights to aggregate all this different information and kind of keep the system in your head and, you know, all those things. I'm interested also about onboarding because you're, so Zapier is a remote first basically company. So mm -hmm. were you onboarded remotely as well? I was. So you've never seen anybody else from the company? Oh, no, no, no. I, d I didn't get to do the onboarding, but we, um, you know, up until uh, actually uh, one year ago was the last time we did a company retreat. So mm. we normally would do those twice a year and maybe even have, you know, like an engineering retreat uh, in the middle of the year as well. So, uh, yeah, the last one we did was in Orlando back in last January and then, you know, the pandemic hit. And we had to kind of put that on pause. But we do plan to definitely get back to doing in-person retreats at some point. What, what about recruiting? I don't know if you're involved a bit into it, but um, mm -hmm. not everybody is able to work remotely. I mean, it's some kind of culture. Mm -hmm. Yeah, we definitely, we do try to understand whether the person is going to do well in a remote uh, setting. And there are people who, they go through the interview process and, or even some people who've taken the job and after, in a couple months in, they're like, you know, it just doesn't work for me to be fully remote. Okay. Um, I don't know if people really have the option not to be these days, but like, you know, so, um, but, uh, but yeah, so we do, we do kind of screen for that. We don't screen people out necessarily based on the things you might think of. Like some people, there's a stereotype that maybe introverts do better in a mm. fully remote company or something, yep. but I have, I have one of the biggest introverts in, that I know on my team and we have other people who are, you know, they're much, they, they love the focus that being remote gives them. Mm. So they, you know, they shut down Slack, they turn off their email and all kind of stuff. And then they go heads down for a couple of hours like that. You know, that's one of the, the things I love the most about remote working is just the flexibility of my, my space is set up how I want it. It's the temperature that I want. I have the music that I want on. Mm. I, I can take, you know, I can go, take a walk around the block if I'm, my head's fuzzy. There are a lot of perks actually. For right? sure. No commute, you know? Yeah, absolutely. That's a, that's a big win. When you recruit someone, what specifically do you try with them to see if it will work remotely. I mean, do you, do you do exercises or? Yeah, for the remote work stuff, I guess it's a, it's a little bit about just having a conversation with people about their, their work style, like where do they get their energy? You try mm. to find out whether they are sort of self-motivated, you know, like, um, you know, you really, you know, like I'm standing here by myself in this room, you know, eight hours a day and I need to, I need to be able to keep myself productive, right? Mm -hmm. And some people, they, they need, you know, external accountability, maybe a little bit more or something. And so, you know, it's, you try to find that. Some those, kind of discipline. Yeah, discipline. Self-discipline. Yeah. Organization, time management, that, those kinds of things. And I've honestly, since I've been at Zapier, have leveled up in those things quite a bit because the people around me at Zapier, she's, she's recently left Zapier, but there was a woman, uh, Vicky Volvoski, who um, is one of the most organized people I, and productive people I've ever known. I mean just to-do lists and different things that just like, and just bang, 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 bang all the time, just kind of working through stuff. So one of the things that I actually have found is a little bit, I don't know if fatiguing is the right word or something, but there's like, we, you know, we were talking a little bit about these meetings where you, know, you get on a call with people and it's like, nice to have the interaction, but we do sometimes slip into a mode where you're going meeting to meeting and it's all very agenda driven and tasky. Right. right. And then you don't, you still don't get that connection with people. And so something I've tried, tried to do with my team is to, set up opportunities for a little bit more sort of bonding and stuff. So we do a, you know, like a team lunch where we just, we all order lunch. We, you know, get reimbursed for lunch once a month. We just sit there and eat and chat. We have like a social standup is another thing, but then even on our regular work calls, you know, it's trying to like make conversation with people for the first five minutes or something. And just, you know, what's, what's new, like, what did you do this mm. weekend? Just simple, just human stuff, you know, and it makes, it makes all the difference in the world. And I, I feel like the, 
the company retreats, you know, they sort of facilitate that bonding so that then, you know, for us, mm -hmm. you know, it was kind of every six months you'd have one of these meetings. And so for the next six months, you already had a little bit of a basis for, for that connection. Mm. And now that we've gone a full year without one, like we're all feeling it, you know, we're just like, oh, we don't feel as connected as we used to. And yeah, you um, need to recharge that connection. Strange. Yeah. 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 So I can't wait for us to be able to do that again. We sort of justify it financially by, you know, we're not paying for an office for 400 Absolutely. people. All right, Andrew. Well, thank you very much. That was very interesting. Your insights. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks for having me on. It was a lot of fun. People can find you on Twitter. Yeah, I'm on Twitter. It's, um, S E G D E H A. Yeah. I'm on Twitter and, um, yeah, I'd love for people connect with me, especially people who are, um, who are passionate about trying to help early career people get into the industry and, um, uh, about kind of fixing, uh, because you're time. recruiting mentors, right? Yeah, we have, yeah, we're always recruiting mentors for the lab lab and, um, and it, you know, we we're running a cohort every quarter. So we'll be, uh, taking applications again for the next one in March, uh, for the, you know, April, like kind of the, uh, the spring cohort. Uh, so, you know, somebody's listening to this and they're sort of finishing up a boot camp or something and they have a little bit of react experience. That's kind of all it takes to um, potentially be uh, accepted to, uh, to the cohort. So. so just Google the collab lab and you will find all the information, right? Yeah. The, uh, the URL is the dash collab dash lab dot codes, C O D E S. Thank you very much, Andrew. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you.